Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. With the latest from Lebanon and the devastation in Beirut. At this moment, an assessment of the destruction from Tuesday's massive explosion is underway. At least 137 people have lost their lives, 5,000 are injured, many remain missing. More than 300,000 people have also lost their homes. While the crater at ground zero is over 120 metres in diameter, the radius of the wider blast zone is at least nine kilometres, damaging both the city's airport and the president's palace. The shockwaves tore through everything in its path. A bride was rushed to safety literally while taking wedding photographs. We do understand that no one in this video was badly hurt. Now questions are being asked as to why almost 3,000 tonnes of a volatile agricultural fertiliser, ammonium nitrate, was stored in the port despite warnings it was, quote, a floating bomb. Ben Weedman is on the ground for us and he sent this report. George Faroun has come with a friend to see what they can salvage from the remains of his parents' apartment, which looked directly onto Beirut's port. Tuesday's blast turned it into a moonscape, a panorama of utter destruction. Dried blood marks the spot where his mother was resting in bed when the explosion sent a wall slamming on top of her. She's still in hospital. This was his parents' retirement home. This is their, their life. Everything they did here, look what happened. Given the damage, they probably will never be able to move back. Many neighbors were badly injured, others killed. In addition to the dead and the wounded, many, many people have lost their homes. According to the governor of Beirut, more than 300,000 people in the city have been made homeless. People are packing up and moving out. While others try to salvage what they can, the area near the port is now a hive of activity as an army of volunteers like Maggie Demergian has launched into a massive cleanup effort. Perhaps to show themselves that despite this country's mountain of woes, good will prevail. Lebanese people doesn't deserve this. Yeah, we are good people. They've come from all over the city, handing out food and water, pitching in wherever, however they can. Officials believe the blast emanated from a warehouse filled with 2,750 metric tons of ammonium nitrate, sitting there under lax security for six years. The government has promised a quick, transparent investigation. 
Yet going back decades, Lebanon has witnessed a series of high-profile assassinations and rarely, if ever, has the truth emerged. This, this accident here, this crisis, for 20 years we're going to talk about the investigation is never going to end. No conclusion, no results. And no confidence among many here that the truth will ever be known. Ben Wiedemann, CNN, Beirut. And our Damon joins us now from Beirut. Our, we were just listening there. Part of the problem here is a lack of trust, a lack of trust in authorities to tell them the truth about what happened here, a lack of trust to address the crippling economic crisis that the country's facing too. Yeah, and I mean, if we just look at the circumstances for the vast majority of the Lebanese population prior to this uh, explosion taking place, you know, a number of humanitarian organizations were warning that because of the economic crisis, the effect of near bankruptcy of the country, coupled with the coronavirus pandemic, some 70 percent of the Lebanese population was going to need humanitarian assistance. On top of that, on top of going through all of that, you then had this horrific explosion that has not only displaced people, as you heard in Ben's piece there, wounded thousands, a death toll that is most certainly expected to rise. You have the physical damage that was done, the estimates of which are running as high as 10 to $15 billion for all the needed repairs to be made. That's money that this government quite simply does not have. And people had been enraged at the Lebanese government even before all of this. Last year, there were protests um, against the government, against corruption, against the economic downturn that really only stopped because of the coronavirus pandemic. And Julie, it's also worth remembering that when this explosion took place, the country had just come out of four days of lockdown because of an increase in COVID cases. They were getting ready to go into another five days um, of lockdown. Again, because numbers of positive coronavirus patients are going up. So you also have this additional uh, inexplicable to a certain degree pressure being put on the hospitals because they were already dealing with coronavirus. Now on top of it, they're trying to scramble at a point when many hospital staff lost their jobs because of the um, economic crisis coupled with the pandemic, trying to deal with this influx of wounded. I mean, what the Lebanese are going through, it, it's so difficult to wrap your mind around it that even those who are living it are struggling to put it into words. Yeah, it's just, um, it's just devastating. Crisis on top of crisis. So, oh, great to have you there to give us information and uh, stay safe, please. Our hearts clearly go out to everybody. Let's talk about what you were discussing there, Armand, as well. Hospitals in Beirut, as Awa mentioned there, overwhelmed. Some so badly damaged, too, they're having to turn away patients. Joseph Atek is the director of the American University of Beirut Medical Center. He joins us now from the capital city. Joseph, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you for making time. Just describe the situation that, that you're facing, whether it's the patients. What, what can you tell us about what you've seen in the last few days? What you have seen in the last few days is worse than what, whatever happened in this country for the past 40 years was really the most horrible experience we went through. In just a second, almost 5,000 wounded people all over the city. More than 300 disappeared. Uh, 300,000 people without a shelter in a, in, a, in a second. All the emergency rooms in Beirut were overhand. Our capacity in all the city is around 
We can handle maybe 500 or 600 casualties at the same time, while here we had to face a massive influx of wounded people, more than 5,000 people. Above this, all the city, all the glass in the city was destroyed and in the street. It was really a horrible vision. In all the ER, people were treated on the streets. All the alarms were ringing. Electricity was cut in the major areas. People were running in the street full of blood. And in the ER, in our hospital, all the attending physicians, all the residents, all the nurses, everybody went on the ground. The, the people were treated on benches, on uh, sidewalks, on the parking lots. It was really, we had three hours of e extreme, extreme, extreme uh, tension and we were put under utmost pressure. Joseph, and, uh, I know you're, this, Joseph, uh, you're painting a picture of devastation, which, um, you know, we can only imagine, quite frankly, watching what's going on there. Just talk to me about the economic difficulties that were already being faced. We've had a currency crisis, capital controls. Are you even able to get the, the PPE, the protective equipment that you need and the medicines? Just describe how that and COVID-19 is sort of complicating your efforts here to, to take care of patients. Exactly. We have been, we have been uh, going through an economic crisis for the past six months since it started maybe in September of 2019. And then all the cap uh, there was capital control on all the inf uh, outflows of money from Lebanon. We're not able to import any more spare parts for the medical equipment. We had the, the central bank subsidized importation of drugs and medication. We had also some subsidies on medical supply, but no subsidy on equipment. And then we have a lot of equipment in the country that are now idling because we cannot import any more for them to run. We have also a major devaluation, forced devaluation. The hospital is we are spending at a rate of $10,000 pounds uh, $10, for $1, while we are cashing from the insurance company uh, at uh, £1,500 for $1. And the government that treats almost 60 to 65% of the population has not paid his dues for the past 18 months. Our financial situation in the hospital are, uh, is very bad. We have we are facing problem with paying the salaries, we are facing problem paying the suppliers, and we are facing problems importing spare parts and even specific drugs and medication. A lot of drugs are missing in the country. Yesterday in the blast, the blast happened in the harbor, and close to the harbor there is the central warehouse of chemotherapy products that was blown up. We will have problem treating cancer patients starting the coming weeks and the coming month, we are really in a very, very, very desperate position from this side as well. Um, Joseph, you've clearly come under fierce criticism for letting your staff go. I, I've seen it. There was fierce criticism on social media. But as you say, you, you owed money from the government going back months and months and months. This is a huge problem for people watching what do you need? What do you need specifically in terms of help? Because this is clearly going to cost lives and cost patients' health. 
we need uh, we need support in terms of uh, access to fresh dollars to be able to import spare parts for our equipment. We need also funds to be able to pay our employees. I'm I'm happy that you asked the question about the people that have to leave to to leave the hospital. Actually, we were not able to pay the salaries anymore for all this population. But those people are part of our family. They are part of community. So it's true that we let them go. We gave them some severance package as we could. At the same time, we are offering them. We created a fund of uh, a medical social fund to support them. Everybody will be treated in the hospital with the money from this support fund and from volunteers in the medical staff. We will help them if they have any social problem in the country. We created a social net as well to protect those employees of AUBMC. But we had, we were obliged to let those people go in order for the institution to survive. And all the problems we are having were not expected. We started with the uh, economic crisis, then we had the COVID crisis, and then we had this blast last week. It's really becoming much more than one can support and one can bear. It's really becoming unbearable. This and after we, what we have seen during the, the blast and after the blast in all the emergencies in Beirut, we are very, uh, we fear a lot that COVID, there will be a new COVID surge because people were getting without any social distancing, without masks, and all they are, the situation was horrible. And we are uh, we fear having a new COVID surge. That that's why we need to have more PPE, and we do not have access to funds. So the situation is becoming more and more complicated and more and more difficult. Desperate, Joseph. Thank you for making time for us to explain the situation. And our hearts go out to you, your team, and everyone involved. Um, stay safe, sir, and uh, come back and talk to us soon, please. Joseph Atayek there. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. Still to come, another week of over a million fresh jobless claims. We'll bring you an update on the U.S. labour market crisis and some low spirits. Japan's drinks maker Suntory reporting a 25% drop in profits as COVID-19 ravages the hospitality industry. We've got the CEO to give us the latest and, of course, more on the ongoing devastation in Lebanon. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. futures pairing their earlier losses amid some more encouraging data on a relative basis on jobless benefit claims. A further 1.2 million Americans filing for first time at benefits last week. That was slightly less than expected and there continues some kind of downward trend. However, it is the 20th week of over 1 million people asking for government support. The number of people actually getting their hands on cash benefits also fell to just over 16 million people. These, of course, the people who are seeing that $600 a week less in their benefit checks as the enhanced government aid runs out. The White House suggesting that it's open to restoring those benefits in full for a short period of time. To be specific, it was Larry Kudlow that said it. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, there's no reason for me here to see anything optimistic when you have in total 32 million people, according to the last check, collecting benefits, but 
there are some signs that the downward trend yeah. here continued. It's, it's so fascinating when Wall Street finds something encouraging and, you know, pretty much everybody else in America is saying, what? <laughs> 55 million people have filed for unemployment benefits for the first time uh, over the past 20 weeks. And that is just a huge number, a very deep hole in the labor market that just on the margin here and there shows signs of, of stabilizing, but then can't really, can't really add on to that. So if we look at the trend, you're right, 1.2 million is uh, the first decline in new jobless claims in three weeks. You want to see that continue to happen. Uh, and so we'll see maybe if next week we can try to hold on to that. But there's some real concern here that this, the recovery has hit a, has hit a roadblock as, as you've got the virus smoldering in other parts of the country now. And when schools start to reopen with fits and starts, what that's going to look like there. Um, when you look at the continuing claims number, it came down, but still 16 million people relying on some form of government, um, government intervention on these unemployment claims. And when you put all the pandemic programs together, it's something like 32 million people are, are living on a, a government check at the moment, a government jobless check. And those checks are smaller as of last week. So that is a real kind of moment here, a shift in the job crisis, I think, because there's not going to be that shock absorber for these families um, this week. They're going to be getting by on something less than $400 a week in jobless checks instead of something like $900 a week. And I think that's going to be something that will be felt in the economy. Yes, immediate slashing of spending simply because you have to. And that in a consumer-driven economy is a huge problem. Christine, we're expecting a non-farm payroll data tomorrow as well. Yeah. What are we expecting there too? Because my fear with this number is it's A, it's backward looking. It doesn't reflect the reality today. And the risk is that lawmakers see it and go, we're still adding jobs. We can still negotiate on yeah. this $600. So the president promised in a Fox interview this week that it was going to be a big number, but he hasn't seen it yet. He'll see that number uh, sometime today when the uh, economists and, and the statisticians over at the uh, Department of Labor have that all kind of put together here. Uh, so he'll see it. Uh, I don't know what that number is going to be. I I'm going to tell you, there is a really wide range of expectations. Some are saying um, maybe there could be job loss again. Others are saying, no, they think we could continue last month's trend and see another million, million and a half jobs created. It's just unclear to me what that number is going to look like. You called it earlier this morning a wild card. I think that's exactly right. I think we should be prepared for any kind of number that comes out of here. Just the sheer trauma the economy and the job market have gone through over the past three months I mean these numbers could be very wild and erratic in the coming weeks as we try to figure out what this recovery is going to look like, the reopening is going to look like. And it's, you know, I, it does not feel like a V-shape to me. Um, when you saw last week's, last month's job numbers, rather, more than 4 million jobs, uh, there were some saying, look, we're back. We're going to come back. This is going to come roaring back. But these jobless claims figures suggest it's not roaring back at all. Yeah, I think there's plenty of people out there that think we're going into reverse. Christine Romans, we'll yeah. see. Thank you. The United States clearly not alone in suffering the economic consequences of fighting the virus, as Christine said there, trauma. Southeast Asia's largest bank, DBS Group, says its second quarter profit dropped more than 20% from a year ago in what the CEO described as a tough quarter. The bank set aside more money too for loan losses in pandemic-hit markets. And I'm very pleased to say joining us now, DBS Group CEO Piyush Gupta. Sir, always a pleasure to have you on the show. I think you coined it. A strong operational performance here, but the conditions, it was a tough quarter. Well, um, Julia, good to be on the show again. And yes, uh, it was a tough quarter. I think principally uh, from a banking standpoint, we've all been impacted by the easy monetary policy. 
the massive round of rate cuts by the Fed have trickled through to all the other central banks around the world. And obviously, for banks like us, that creates a lot of headwinds from a revenue standpoint. Uh, but on top of that, uh, like everywhere else, uh, the economy is pretty much shut down in April and May. And that created some pretty severe headwinds for us for things like credit card business and uh, spending overall. Uh, fortunately, things started improving a bit in June, but overall for the quarter, that was challenging uh, as well. Uh, it was fortunate we did have some tailwinds. Uh, volumes on the loans and deposit side were strong. Uh, trading was a knockout quarter, like it was for many of the US banks, so that was helpful. And uh, some of our balance sheet pre-positioning came in handy. But even after all of that, uh, we showed zero growth uh, year on year for the quarter. So that's uh, obviously not a great place to want to be in. Yeah, you've raised some really important points here. Um, a lot of the recovery, let's call it that, that we're seeing, at least in the, in the short term as we came out of shutdown in the region, is driven by stimulus support as well. What does the second half of the year look like as some of that pulls away and small businesses clearly uh, are still facing great challenges just given the backdrop and, and the virus environment? Julia, the recovery in Asia um, is sort of fragmented. It depends on uh, which countries you're talking to. Uh, interestingly, uh, China, most of North Asia, the rebound is fairly solid. China is operating, uh, other than the export sector, is operating at 90-100% uh, already. Taiwan was uh, never slowed down. The tech sector, semiconductors in particular, actually benefited from the crisis. Hong Kong was doing well, slowed down in July, but generally, uh, North Asia has been better. Uh, Singapore has been, uh, unfortunately, more uh, handicapped. We have a very open economy, pays 300% of GDP. And because the external sector and the external account is obviously shut down, that's been a handicap. And frankly, some of our other markets, Indonesia and India, uh, are also struggling. They haven't even had the fiscal capacity to promote large stimulus. Uh, so it's been a little bit uh, patchy. Uh, even within that, when I say North Asia has been stronger, the recovery exists, but it's not uh, as robust as you might imagine. So I'm not in the camp uh, looking for a V-shaped recovery at all. I think you'd be uh, looking at a U-shaped and perhaps W's uh, as the you know pandemic comes in and out of several markets. Uh, so I do think it's going to be challenging. Now to your second question, uh, some of the countries have been benefited by stimulus packages. They tend to run out into the fourth quarter or uh, towards the end of the year, early next year. And when those run out, I think you're going to have a serious challenge of how do you exit in a smooth and safe way. So I think for the banking sector, uh, the problem of non-performing loans and credit, uh, that shoe will drop. Uh, also, I think you will see a lot more retrenchment and therefore uh, joblessness. And finally, I do think you'll see a lot more defaults. So in my own book, I think next year from a banking sector standpoint, will it frankly be even more challenging than this year has been. Wow. I mean, that's something to, uh, to be aware of, certainly. I want to very quickly hone in on the Singaporean economy, because as you mentioned, clearly it's a huge part of your business. Lots of separate issues, including being a small open economy. So when everyone else is suffering around the world, it's an added sort of double whammy to what they're facing. Is a W-style recovery what you're looking at for, for Singapore here? So a, a further pullback? I think Singapore, uh, I don't anticipate a W because from a health standpoint and managing the pandemic standpoint, uh, we're beginning to get our arms around that problem. 
but I do anticipate uh, you, it's going to take some time for various sectors in the economy to recover. Uh, for us, the you know, hospitality sector is important, tourism is important, uh, the whole conventions, mice, etc. is important. I don't see those sectors coming back uh, anytime soon, certainly not this year. And so that will be challenging. Now, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on a task force. We have at uh, uh, Singapore level, national level, trying to chart what we should do in a post-COVID world. And I'll tell you why we have some ideas on how we could restructure the economy and some potential sources of growth into the future. Uh, it is not going to be easy, and it's certainly not something that we can expect results from in the very short term. But the conversation needs to be had. You know, I'm, I was poring over your numbers and looking for the silver linings. And you and I often talk about how focused you've been over a number of years on digitization and making sure that that access point for the customer is there. The volumes on your digital transactions, the increase in market share, very positive signs here, which is a strength for the bank today and clearly going to be a strength going forward, too. Yes, I would agree with that. Frankly, it's helped us through this period. Uh, we've been able to get a lot more digital transacting activity. Our volumes are up 30 40% across the board. Like you correctly said, market shares are up. The interesting anecdote is we're now seeing a lot more activity from the recalcitrants. Uh, people in the 60s and 70s are taking to online banking, and uh, that's obviously quite helpful. Uh, but I do think that as you look forward at a post-COVID world, uh, this change in both consumption and production patterns, i.e. a lot more digital, is going to be uh, prevalent in almost every industry, whether it's health or education or banking. And those firms and those players who've been able to embrace the digital shift uh, will tend to do uh, all right, I think. Uh, certainly in our case, in addition to the banking services, we think there are new opportunities. I think sustainability, for example, the ESG sector is going to be big and uh, digital allows you to play in that sector very differently from uh, traditional banking. So I do think there's some glimmers of hope, uh, but it will require some focus and it's not going to come easy. No, work needs to be done. I always walk away from our conversation smarter. Every company has to be a tech company first and then whatever else your business is in has to almost come second behind that in the, in the new normal. Piyush, always great to chat to you. Piyush Gupta, CEO of DBS Group there. Thank you for joining us on the show today. All right, we're going to take another break. But coming up, Leviden's spiralling crisis remaining in focus after the break. How civil war, economic woes, corruption and now a pandemic have decimated hopes of revival. What must be done? We'll discuss. Welcome back to the show. The Lebanese government has promised to investigate precisely what caused the massive explosion in Beirut killing at least 137 people and injuring many more. There's growing anger at the government's handling of oh ammonium nitrate, which had been stored at a oh Beirut warehouse for some six years. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, you've been investigating successive years of concerns raised about the storage of this ammonium nitrate, and yet it seems nothing was done. What do we know? Yeah, you, you've got to ask yourself, was there some kind of bureaucratic inertia at work uh, in Beirut over this, over this almost three tonnes of a, uh, deadly ammonium nitrate, 3,000 tonnes uh, of deadly ammonium nitrate? Um, or was there something more malicious going on? 
it was of such a level of concern that you have the uh, director of the Customs Authority in, in Beirut r writing letters to officials were two of them in 2014, another 2015, 2016, 2017, saying that this substance is, quote, extremely dangerous. And he was requesting authorities to get this material shipped back out of the country again because he was concerned that it was stored so close to people. So the process of trying to investigate uh, one what initiated the fire what initiated the explosions that's on the one side but why the situation arose on that side it drills down into the bureaucracy so who was he writing to what did they respond and in this case it was writing to the department of justice and what was the response there and then what precipitated from that we know nothing so um, somewhere in that chain something was going wrong maliciously or just bureaucratic inertia so that's where it lies at the moment nick for the current government as they're investigating this and they have promised that they will get to the bottom of what happened here and how this ex initial explosion the two obviously took place there's a lot of skepticism that we'll actually get the truth in this investigation and there's perhaps incentive here to blame others nick I'm talking to an intelligence official in Lebanon, and I know what they're focusing on, and they're focusing on this very carefully, and obviously you would expect an intelligence authorities of any country to do this, to look at, you know, the implication possibly was there a national security threat at work here. So they're looking through all the videos to see if there was malicious intent at the port, at the warehouse, to start a fire, or, or was there some kind of explosion that began to trigger the chain reaction? So that's where they're focusing at the moment. But you can see that if that narrative uh, if, finds some evidence, and if the government is able to say, we've looked at this and we believe the site itself was attacked somehow, yet to find out what that is, then there's a possibility they can say this isn't just a bureaucratic nightmare or people not doing their job for nefarious reasons or whatever. They'd be able to say, yes, it was a mistake to have that there. We were trying to get rid of it. But what happened to it was not an accident. This was perpetrated on us. So there you can see that the government would have a narrative that might ease some of the pain and anger of the people in Beirut over time, because then you'd have an investigation to find out precisely who was behind it. And, and, and these things play out over time and, 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 and anger dissipates. It's certainly not going to bring the lives back, as we know. And it's certainly in, in the heat of the moment right now is probably not going to wash very well. No, it doesn't bring people back. It doesn't stop the injuries. And Nick, we spoke to the head of the Hotels Association yesterday that said the insurance for small businesses is invalidated if it's found to be terrorism rather than just a, a tragic accident. So uh, there's real complications and, and importance attached to this for the economy as well and getting to the bottom of what happened. Nick, thank you for that. Nick Robertson there reporting. Lebanon's once glamorous image now replaced with scenes of crippling poverty and a sinking middle class. Just to give you a sense, one in three people today now without a job. The Lebanese pound has lost 80% of its value just since October. Inflation skyrocketing, more than 45% of people now living below the poverty line. All this in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic and delays in finalising an IMF rescue package. This could be the biggest threat 
to stability since the 1975 civil war, which lasted five years and saw the banks closed and payments suspended. Joining us now is Laurie Haitayand from the Natural Resource Governance Institute, a nonprofit dedicated to improving countries' governance. Larry, great to have you on the show with us. The truth is, Lebanon can't afford to fix the damage that's been caused by this explosion. Thank you for having me. That's true. Like that, Lebanon is in a big, big problem today, and it will be very difficult for Lebanon on its own to fix the problem. And we have, as you said, an economic meltdown and we have political crisis, economic crisis, social crisis. And this came as, a, as an additional disaster to the problem that we're facing. So definitely today, Lebanon needs the help of the international community. And, but again, uh, the help that should come to the international, through the international community should not be a sign of a rescue for the government and government officials and the political parties and the political regime. It should go directly to help the, uh, the, uh, those who need it. And today, the French president was in Beirut, and that was a clear message. He said, we are here to support the people of Lebanon and not the government. And all the aid that will come to Lebanon will be for the people of Lebanon. And the only way to re-engage uh, officially with the government is through the reforms that they need to do. And, and only when reforms happen, then the government or the aid should come through the government. I do wonder whether this tragedy is a, a catalyst for compromise here, to your point on reforms and the things that the International Monetary Fund are, are demanding here. But just, Larry, in the short term, what's your biggest fear? Because with the port so badly damaged, food prices already rising, a lot of the cereals, I believe, were stored in this location too. This is surely only going to put more pressure on food supplies Definitely, there is a risk today, but at the same time, we are seeing all the support that is coming from abroad, from the Lebanese diaspora that are being really great in uh, helping the Lebanese. And today we heard that uh, they, they can send the dollars and people can receive the dollars uh, directly. So that is a good help that the diaspora is doing and much appreciated. But definitely there is a big risk of food shortages and uh, like the food security is at risk. We know, understand that. But hopefully the humanitarian aid and the aid will, will rescue the Lebanese. But again, uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is really serious. And Lebanese inside Lebanon should support each other. And the aid that is coming from abroad, from the Lebanese and others, is mo the most important today. Or else we're not going to make it. It's not only Beirut. It will be the whole country that would go into an economic disaster. Worse than what we've seen yesterday in Beirut. Larry, just to be clear, you're saying that the, the government said that if people are sent money by relatives or friends abroad, they can actually get access to it. This is what we heard today. And right. this is what people were asking for, at least to help people that need to restore their shops, their houses. They need to repair uh, what, is, uh, what, what was uh, dis destroyed by, the, by, the, uh, by the, this criminal act that happened in Beirut two days ago. Well, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what the results of uh, the investigation is, uh, Larry. But it's criminal to let people suffer so badly. Do you Definitely. think this is a catalyst to allow the government to negotiate and fulfil on the reforms that are being demanded by people no. like the International Monetary Fund? This should be the catalyst for that. This should be the catalyst for the people to go, to ask for accountability and this time to go on the streets and not to go back streets unless there is 
change in the political regime. That's it. We today, we today we know that this is negligence. It's crime against the Lebanese population. These political parties are not able to secure the lives of the Lebanese. And that's it. I think today this is the catalyst to say game over. They need to leave. They need to go wherever they need to go to jail or disappear even. I think Lebanese today, they just want to get rid of these people and start over with, with a decent government and with a decent political regime that really cares for the people. It is not acceptable to know that there are, there, these explosive materials were sitting there for six years and no one was doing anything for it. Just imagine the picture. You had, you had uh, 15,000 tons of grains stored in the port next to 2,700 Kilo, uh, tons of explosive. This is this is not acceptable. This is not the deed and the actions of a responsible government or regime. So I think this is the catalyst, not for compromise. And the international community understands that, and no one is ready to compromise with the criminal government. Yeah, Larry, you're asking all the right questions. We hope you get some answers. Larry Haitayan, great to have you with us. Thank you. Um, the Middle East and North Africa director at the Natural Resource Governance Institute. Stay safe, please. All right, up next, as COVID-19 upends the hospitality industry, I speak to the CEO of the Japanese spirits and consumer products company, Suntory, about their plans for recovery. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And let's take a look at the price action this morning for U.S. stocks were a touch lower amid word that an additional 1.2 million Americans filed for jobless benefits last week. It is a modest drop from last week, but just to be clear, there's still more than 31 million Americans collecting some form of jobless benefits in America. All right, to Japan now and the world's third largest maker of spirits, Suntory. Its uh, traditional focus was whiskey, but it's now a consumer products business incorporating food and soft drinks, too. In 2019, more than 70% of its revenue came from just two markets, Japan and the United States. In Japan, COVID-19 fears are keeping drinkers at home. Meanwhile, in the United States, grappling with an outbreak that's not yet under control. I'm pleased to say joining us now is Takeshi Niyami. He's the CEO of Suntory Holdings, and he joins us now. So fantastic to have you on the show. As I mentioned, there are two biggest markets facing some pretty big challenges. Talk me through your plan of action and what you're seeing. I think um, uh, t those two markets are hard so much. But uh, alcohol products are doing very well, in a sense, despite the fact that uh, uh, both markets are so much infected by coronavirus. We have three pillars. One is uh, alcohol beverages, two are uh, soft drinks, and third, uh, nutrition products. And in the second, the soft drinks uh, got the heart most. First of all, the economy of scale matters a lot. And its sales uh, went down so much in Japan because of a vending machine which is uh, installed in our office, and the office doesn't have workers at this moment. And second, um, our Japanese uh, uh, business uh, got hurt because basically people don't drink if they don't move around. So per capita consumption of soft drink went down so much. And the third, our European business is not doing well. So. Uh, we will go into more and more e-commerce. 
And we swiftly uh, shifted our resources to e-commerce and home delivery in our businesses. But our, our good sign, which is a silver lining, is uh, nutritional products because of huge rise in um, healthcare, health, health, uh, uh, health consciousness, which is rising in the world. That segment, which is our third pillar, is doing very well. Now we push the uh, nutritional product division as well as the uh, uh, nutritional uh, contents in soft drink. That is uh, our strategy. And in addition to that, uh, we will make use of e-com in the United States for alcohol products, spirits, focusing on more uh, premium brands. We have more than five, six premium brands. That is a key for us to grow, to offset the uh, huge drop uh, from uh, um, bars and the restaurants uh, by the huge increase of the uh, home consumption. So we'd like to offset by putting more resources to the uh, home consumption by making use of digitalization. Yes. And we're seeing that more and more, both in terms of increased sales and increased focus for companies too. You mentioned the big challenge here, though, and that's restaurants, seeing less customers, perhaps not even being open. You suggested around a month ago that 20% of restaurants could close in Japan. Do you still think that possibility, that scale, is likely? I think it's, it's underway, I'm afraid wow. to say. Yes, um, I'm so concerning, concerned about the current growing new cases, though the death toll rate is pretty low and uh, serious cases uh, is not so much. However, uh, people are not so active. So definitely we need more PCR testing and antigen testing to alleviate the anxiety of the people so that the people can go out and dine out. Otherwise, uh, people are so cautious, especially those who are over 60 or 70 years old. They have the, uh, lots of the uh, assets in Japan. They definitely have to consume to pick up our economy as well as uh, to give the good uh, businesses to restaurants. So we are so, uh, I mean, I am um, pessimistic about the restaurant business at this moment. Are you calling on the government to do more? Because you're saying, I mean, we're talking jobs, so many jobs that will be lost, businesses that are failing. Surely the government needs to do more if you're saying more testing to give people confidence to go back out there. Yes, I'm uh, requesting so hard repeatedly to increase uh, the number of, uh, I mean, the capability and uh, uh, availability of PCR and antigen testing, plus support financially uh, restaurants and the bars. And uh, I think uh, uh, having said that, the government has to think about uh, uh, some kind of a scheme to move labors to another or other industries like uh, e-com or well, Amazon, Rakuten, they are doing great in Japan yeah. and they need more people. So how we swiftly move the labor to those in need, that is the, what the government has to think about quickly. 
I couldn't agree more. Talk to me about your other ways of innovating. I know in the United States, you're looking at online cocktail making to try and engage people from home, which is a, a focus. You've also been looking at helmets, perhaps, that people could wear in bars in Japan or elsewhere. Talk to me about these plans, because this is a sign of Suntory innovation in progress. Julia, you know very much about that. We are now developing a face shield, which is a creates a safety for people to eat and uh, uh, drink together. But not, not that many people, but uh, that avoids uh, uh, droplets to each other. So we need innovation so that the people gather to support the restaurants and the bars. People want to get together. I believe that uh, younger generations are fed up with the sheltered in. So we have to resolve their issue because we, see more cases of mental illness because of uh, uh, working from home. So younger people have energy. They want to get together and eat together, discuss together, argue together. So we'd like to offer something innovative, things for them to get together, like a helmet, but it should be a nice one. <laughs> I do love it. You have to come back and talk to me very soon when you when you come up with your helmet. And I agree with you, the social aspects of what we're missing here is so critical to uh, Takeshi Niyami. Thank you so much for joining us on the show and a great to chat to you, the CEO of Suntory Holdings there. Looking forward to our next conversation, sir. Thank right. you. Thank you. Up next, moments of hope and humanity, friends and foes alike, pay tribute to the victims of the Beirut tragedy. That's next. Beirut, getting help and support from around the world. Overnight, the Eiffel Tower went dark to honor the victims. France is sending military planes, a mobile clinic and other aid to Lebanon. Tel Aviv, meanwhile, lit up its municipal building with the Lebanese flag. Israel, of course, offering its help. That's no small gesture. Israel considers Lebanon an enemy state, but officials there say humanity comes first. And amid the chaos and the rubble, a moment of tranquility, and I think a show of great resilience. A 1779-year-old grandmother played Old Lang in her Beirut home. The piano, as you can see, appears to be one of the few things left unscathed. That's it for the show. I'm Julia Chasley. Stay safe and we'll continue to bring you all the news and the latest from Lebanon. Stay with CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.